according to St. Mark. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and then the fever left her and she began to serve them that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons and the whole city was gathered around the door and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him in the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him, and when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring town, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the gospel of the Lord. On August 28, 1955, a young African-American man from Chicago named Emmett Till was down visiting relatives in Mississippi when he was dragged from the house of his great uncle taken by two white men who proceeded to torture him before shooting him and dumping him in the Tallahatchie River. His crime was allegedly having whistled at a white woman in a general store, the wife of one of the men who ultimately lynched him. It's a horrific, if all too common, story in the South during the first two-thirds of the 20th century. So while I want to be honest, I also want to be sensitive because there are still open wounds among our siblings. At the time, these sorts of violent crimes against African Americans were a, a common way of warning black people to stay in their place and therefore didn't usually receive much media attention, nor, I might add, hardly any attention from white churches, a sin for which we have not, in my estimation, sufficiently confessed or atoned. The murder of Emmett Till might have gone unnoticed, except by those closest to the crime, if it were not for his mother. Mamie Till Bradley made the decision now famous years later, to have an open casket. That young 
Emmett Till's body was unrecognizable because of the brutality of those who murdered him made the decision controversial. But Mamie Till Bradley said, There is just no way I could describe what was in that box. No way. And I just wanted the world to see. Tens of thousands of people flocked to A.A. Rayner Funeral Home in Chicago to pay their respects and to bear witness to the racist brutality visited upon not only one young black man, but because of the terrifying nature of the crime upon all black people. Jet Magazine was permitted to photograph Emmett Till's body. The photographs were subsequently published in Jet and in the black newspaper, the Chicago Defender. A picture of Mamie Till Bradley hovering over the body of her son was later published in Time magazine. The photos in the Chicago Defender ignited fury among the black population of the city. The pictures published in Jet and in Time gave much of the rest of the country a rare glimpse into the unspoken horror and savagery against black people that the country had allowed to go unchallenged for too long. Emmett Till's murder and the public nature of his funeral arguably lit the fuse for the civil rights movement that was to be launched shortly thereafter, a movement that gave the world such luminaries as Rosa Parks, Medgar Evers, Fannie Lou Hamer, Malcolm X, John Lewis, Diane Nash, and Martin Luther King Jr., and resulted in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Funerals with open caskets are fairly common affairs. I mean, I've participated in funerals where despite con the condition of the body and the counsel of the funeral director, people have made the call to go ahead with open caskets, even though others have thought it unwise. But the open casket funeral of Emmett Till wasn't just about an open casket animated by a mother who couldn't bear the thought of letting her son go. Because of the social climate at the time, which was marked by the pervasiveness of black suffering at the hands of white people, that act meant inestimably more. It carried a symbolic meaning that launched a revolution. See, some acts aren't just acts. They have much greater meaning. The, the kiss of your beloved after a fight, it's not the same kiss as you get when you head off to work. Right? The physical act may be the same, but the meaning of that act changes depending on your circumstances. Right? Walking up the steps to your family home after being away for 10 years can be an entirely different experience depending on your reason for being gone so long. I mean, it could be exciting. It could be full of dread, even though the steps still creak in the same way, regardless of what you anticipate when you walk through the door. The miracle stories in the gospel are the same way. Jesus isn't just wandering uh, about curing people and doing magic tricks. What set Jesus apart was the, the backdrop against which he did these acts, because Frankly, there were plenty of 
wonder workers in Palestine at the time of Jesus. But the, the context in which he does his healings makes them different. But take healing, for example. I mean, the Gospels are less interested in the physical details of people's maladies, which is entirely opposite of how we tend to deal with sickness today, right? Oh, you've been sick? What's wrong? Uh, I, got, I got COVID. Did you have that racking cough like forever? Yep. Fever, chills? I did. And weakness? Yes, I hated that part. Did you lose your sense of taste and smell? Yeah, sure did. Man, COVID is the worst. I know what you mean, and I was one of the lucky ones, right? I mean, we've heard these conversations, had these conversations. But in ancient cultures, these sort of episodes were treated more generally, which is more to say like illnesses rather than like sicknesses. All right, so what could that possibly mean? Well, prior to the kind of medicine that we practice now in modern times, one's health was a description of the whole self, not just the modern fixation on physical symptoms. I mean, one's health took into account not only the physical, but also the social and economic factors that came along with it. For instance, in an agrarian society like the Galilee of the Gospels, which always sort of dwelt on the razor's edge of poverty, for most people, being sick didn't just mean suffering physical symptoms. It had socioeconomic implications. For a poor day laborer, not being able to work even for a short time could spell financial ruin and ultimately destitution. A part of the problem for day laborers who were already teetering on the precipice of a life-and-death battle, was a vicious vortex of doom. Because already at subsistence levels, day laborers in Jesus' time had no margin for error. I mean, they needed to work to eat. Malnourishment leads to fragile health, which in turn prevents you from working, which prevents you from eating, which makes you sicker, which makes you miss work, world without end. Amen. The life expectancy for day laborers in Palestine during the first century was about one to three years. It's not that different today, even with modern medicine. Being sick if you're rich is an entirely different experience from being sick if you're poor. It's not even always about the socioeconomic costs of illness, not only about the, the physical maladies visited upon us. We have to ask questions like, I mean, who's going to pay, right? Will I be able to keep my job? If I lose my job, will I be able to keep my home, my, my kids? If I have to buy expensive medicine, will, will that mean I can't buy food or pay for the electric bill? See, if you're wealthy, being sick is mostly about being sick. But if you're poor, being sick is oftentimes not even the worst part of it. Consequently, we should note that Jesus' healing ministry almost exclusively focused on the illnesses of 
the poor and those of low wealth, not the sicknesses of the rich. And in that sense, his healings were a statement about the nature of a world in which being sick and being poor could be deadly. These are the kinds of inequities that the kingdom of God that Jesus is announcing would remedy. Also, in a society where sickness was a sign of religious impurity, your place in the religious and social order could be damaged. So, leprosy in the Gospels, for instance, wasn't necessarily anything like what modern medicine classifies as leprosy. In the world Jesus lived in, being a leper meant not only that you were sick, it also put you outside the boundaries of the community, cut off from your family, from polite society, even from God. As a consequence of this dynamic, the Gospels talk about Jesus in terms of healing and not in terms of curing. Now, that's not necessarily to say that Jesus doesn't alleviate people's physical suffering, but that those acts often take place in a framework in which the very lives of the poor, their, their lives in totality, are imperiled by illness. And so healing isn't just like an act uh, that is it's like other acts. Healing, in Jesus' case, means there is a revolutionary aspect to it. I mean, think about our text for today. So Jesus, upon leaving the synagogue after healing a man with unclean spirits in our gospel last week, Jesus goes for the traditional sort of post-worship pot roast dinner at Simon and Andrew's house, only to be told upon arriving that Simon's mother-in-law is laid up with fever. And so Jesus takes her hand, he lifts her up, and what do you know? She's better, able to get up now and take the yeast rolls right out of the oven. Now, let me be quick to underscore the point I was just making about context. See, when we modern folks hear that her, after her fever breaks, Simon's mother-in-law gets up and starts serving everyone, some of us blanch. I mean, it sounds like Jesus has shown up just in time to heal her so that she can set out the hors d'oeuvres. And we tend to think indignantly, look, women aren't just around to serve men. I mean, we're thoroughgoing egalitarians, after all. And, and rightfully so, I might point out. I mean, me too. Time's up. Women have been victims of patriarchy for way, way too long. For for example, the, the, in, in, in the latest uh, employment numbers, it's been noted that the bulk of the job losses that we have um, experienced of late are women dropping out of the workforce. But though our modern reaction to this text might very well be enlightened and progressive, it does fail to take the very important characteristic of context into account. I mean, the, the, the problem that this poor woman suffered, apart from the critical problem of having a fever, 
which, as I've said, often life-threatening condition in the ancient world, was her loss of place. You see, as a matriarch of a home, a woman's responsibilities as hostess bestowed upon her very great honor and important status. The woman's sickness would have vexed her not just because it was dangerous, but also because it prevented her from fully living up to her role in the community, one that gave her dignity and identified her within that community. In other words, Jesus' healing restores, restores her not only to health, but to the community as a fully functioning participant. Look, we, we have good intentions, but, but we have to be careful not to project our understanding of how the world ought to work on first century people, right? We'd, we'd like to think that Jesus would do things the, the way we think are right, well, the problem is he always seems to resist working anybody's agenda but his own. I mean, he knows who he is, and he's perfectly content to do what he needs to do, whether it meets with anybody else's approval or not. So let's pause for a moment and consider the first two stories of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Mark. Now, in the first, Jesus cleanses a man of unclean spirits in the synagogue, and in the second, he heals Simon's mother-in-law. In the first case, the man who had been unclean is made clean and returned to the worshiping community. And in the second case, a woman who has been prevented from fulfilling her role in the community is raised to wholeness and allowed to resume her duties, duties that define her sense of self, that mark out for her her place in the world. Now, if we take the two stories, the first two stories of Jesus' ministry in Mark seriously, we're left to conclude that Jesus understands the right thing to be the restoration to full participation in the community to those who've been cut off, left on the sidelines, forced to press their noses against the stained glass windows to try to get a glimpse inside. He offers not just a cure but what people truly need, which is true healing. Because, I mean, here's the thing for those who follow Jesus. There are too many people who've been cut off from the community that the church at its best has to offer. The mentally ill, the physically sick, the neurodiverse, the immigrant, the poor, the, the imprisoned, and those just too scared or too tired to risk walking up the steps and through the door or to hit the click, uh, to click the link for Facebook Live or, or, or the Zoom uh, worship. Because of divorce or sexual orientation or gender expression or race or just because they've cheated on their taxes or on their spouses or themselves out of a future that they once thought was possible. Too many people have for too long been made to feel as though the table around which we gather has a place only for people who act and sin like us. But if Jesus' mission is about healing, about reestablishing the dignity and purpose of others, of helping them to find a place that's safe and affirming, then perhaps we who are his followers ought to follow suit. 
and seek out those people to offer hospitality. And perhaps we should be less concerned with doing what everyone else thinks the church ought to do and worry more about doing what Jesus calls us to do, which is to make a place in the world for those who have no place. I mean, can you imagine that kind of world? A world where everyone has a seat at the table, where, where no one is outside the bounds of community, where the divisions that keep us cut off from one another have been, <coughs> have been healed. Because let's be honest, not, not all acts are created equal. Some acts can start a revolution. According to the, rest, the way the rest of the world keeps score, but it's not much of a mission, but that's okay. We follow Jesus. We know what it looks like to know who you are. We, we don't need anyone else's approval to do the right thing. We just do it. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.